Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. So this is not a normal episode, if you haven't figured that out already. Tom is away in Ohio on family matters. Good ones, I assure you. And I am actually moving to a new apartment in about two hours, actually. Still staying in Brooklyn, but this is the last recording that I'll ever make here in the Cobble Hill Studios. So because of all of this, we had actually originally planned to skip an episode this week, just after the holiday, but that just felt a little wrong to me. So instead, I'd like to introduce you to a very New York-centric episode of the Bowery Boys spin-off podcast, The First, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. Now, this is an episode which ran about a month ago in the original podcast feed for The First. So some of you have already heard this show. The subject is a particularly important moment in entertainment history. The unbelievable story of the stage production from 1866 that many consider to be the very first Broadway musical, a show called The Black Crook. Now, this has actually popped up in a couple Bowery Voice episodes in the past, one that was recorded on Niblo's Garden which is where the production takes place, and also on our early history of the Broadway musical show. We did an entire survey up until the late 1920s. But today's show focuses on just this one weird show. I think you're going to like this. It's got it all. Dancing girls, dramatic fires, and a hideous story about the devil. All brought to life in this particular show with actual live music numbers from the show itself, you're going to hear the voice of Leonard Bernstein, not to mention a dramatic theater review read by performer Ben Rimmelauer. Now, another reason I wanted to present this particular show to you at this moment is that it contains a big clue as to the subject of our next show. See if you can locate it. If you like the first and want to check out more of them, just look for the show wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you get the Bowery Boys. Just look up The First Stories. It's the easiest way to find it. The latest episode is about the secret history of soft drinks, but there's other recent shows about early tattooing on the Bowery, the invention of recorded music. There's one on Nikola Tesla and the invention of the remote control and many, many others. 
The Bowery Boys, both Tom and I, will return in two weeks with a new show on July 21st. And brand new episodes of the first will start back up again on the week after July 28th. And now, the story of the Black Crook. The listener is cordially invited to step back in time to 1866 to Niblo's Garden, one of the finest stages in all of the United States, to witness a grand, magical, and spectacular drama featuring a ballet troupe of 70 lovely ladies, a musical about the temptations of the devil. This is the first. In 1956, Leonard Bernstein appeared on the educational TV series Omnibus, chatting about the history of musical theater. It all began back in 1866, 90 years ago, just after the Civil War, with a great extravaganza entitled The Black Crook, a smash hit which contained this showstopper, a song, a comedy song called You Naughty Naughty Men. This song, of course, had nothing at all to do with the plot, but it served to amuse the audience while they changed the scenery. I will never more deceive you or of happiness bereave you, but I'll die and make you grieve you, oh, you naughty, naughty men. You may talk of love and sighing, say for us you're nearly dying. All the while you know you're trying to deceive you naughty men. You may talk of love and sighing, say for us you're nearly dying. All the while you know you're trying to deceive you naughty, naughty men. The Black Crook was a terrible, terrible show with little redeeming value. But from the moment of its first production on September 12, 1866, this strange, overly long, ridiculous production would change the fate of the American stage. From the original New York Times review, thus making it, I suppose, the first musical theater review to ever run in the New York Times. The great spectacular play entitled The Black Crook, written by Charles Barris Esquire of this city, was presented at Niblo's Garden, New York, on Wednesday evening for the first time. The Black Crook is a story of sorcery, demonism, and wickedness generally. The first act is trashy, but affords ample scope for fine, spectacular display, and introduces the French and English ballet troops who were received with enthusiasm. No similar exhibition has been made on an American stage that we can remember. Certainly none where such a combination of youth, grace, beauty, and elan was found. It will be repeated every night and is well worth seeing, as it is decidedly the event of this spectacular age. The Black Crook was musical epoch. It changed all that came afterwards, a sheer, unadulterated spectacle, that must-see show. It was the Gilded Age's version of Showboat, its West Side Story, its Phantom of the Opera, its Hamilton. Except, of course, The Black Crook, as I mentioned earlier, was total garbage. The story of the making of The Black Crook, as one might expect of a story about the devil begins with a fire. 
The finest opera house in all of New York City was the Academy of Music on 14th Street near New York's Union Square, providing the city's elite with a venue to show off their great wealth and possibly, on occasion, even enjoying the highbrow entertainments provided there. In short, this was the center of the upper class during the Civil War. But on May 21st, 1866, fire gutted the Academy of Music, the devilish blaze tearing through the structure late into the evening. This, of course, traumatized the upper crust. The Academy of Music would eventually be rebuilt. But perhaps no one was more horrified by this than the theatrical managers Henry C. Jarrett and Henry Palmer. At great expense, the pair intended to mount an extravagant, fantastic ballet at the Academy of Music entitled La Biche à Bois. Dozens of European dancing girls were cast for this production, chiefly for their appearance. Said Mr. Jarrett later, quote, Legs are staple articles and will never go out of fashion. We will gather an array of them that will make even the surfeited New Yorker open his eyes and his pocket. In addition, they had hundreds of costumes made in Paris and colossal set pieces shipped over from London. No expense spared. But now they didn't have a place to produce this show. This production that they had dreamt of could only be mounted from a gigantic stage. So frantically, they looked around for another home. Some versions of this story claim Jarrett knocked on the door of one theatrical operator the very morning of the fire. That theater operator was named William Wheatley. William Wheatley was the manager of Niblo's Garden, located at Prince Street and Broadway. Most people today refer to the American musical form as the Broadway musical. So decisively has the location affixed itself upon the form's development. In the mid-19th century, Broadway represented something slightly different, running parallel up the length of Manhattan alongside the Bowery. The two have symbolically represented the two halves of New York life. Broadway, the destination of fashionable shops, churches, and hotels, not to mention its most regal architecture. The Bowery was the domain of the poorer classes, the immigrants, the working class. Entertainment forms developed very differently on these two streets, although given their proximity to one another, very close, just a couple blocks distance in certain cases, a bit of that body bowery might slip into the respectable stream of Broadway amusements. By the 1850s, theaters along Broadway, specifically in the area below Houston Street, presented farce, minstrelsy, and burlesque, thrown in with some stodgy oratory, some acrobatics, in all the beginnings of what would become known as vaudeville. You would occasionally, of course, see... Shakespearean plays, ballets, and opera, too, performing in theaters next to spiritualists and magicians. Because of New York's increasingly diverse population, with their appetites wet for something dazzling and new, these early Broadway theaters became a laboratory for invention. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. 
It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Niblo's Garden was one of the oldest stages on Broadway, a former pleasure garden which opened in 1834 that evolved over the years to satisfy a wide variety of proper theatrical amusements, including opera. In May of 1866, Niblo's operator, William Wheatley, received the frantic Mr. Jarrett with much interest. A homeless troupe of beautiful ballet dancers, freshly made Parisian costumes, and rich, towering sets. A solution had fallen upon his lap. For Nimblos was already booked with a new play, a play called The Black Crook, written by struggling playwright Charles Barris. By literally every single account, Barris's play, which was a Faustian knockoff, was absolutely terrible. It was awful. Today, it sounds like some kind of hallucinogenic German religious fable, your standard boy-meets-girl-meets-evil-wizard-got-it-by-Satan type story. I'll do what I can to summarize the plot here. An evil wizard, the black crook of the title, named Herzog, is seduced with the promise of everlasting life offered by the devil, here in this play named Zamiel. The price for this immortal gift was the soul of one human being each year. Conveniently, a beautiful maiden named Amina had drawn the attentions of two suitors, her beloved, a gentle painter named Rodolphe, and the ruthless Count Wolfenstein, who became jealous of Amina's affections to Rodolphe and threw him into a dungeon. Herzog, the one trying to impress the devil here, arrives to release Rudolph, only to send him on a quest for a cave of gold. Don't ask. During this quest, Rudolph rescues a dove from an evil serpent, although fortunately it was not an ordinary dove, but was actually the fairy Stalacta, queen of the Golden Realm. As a thank you, she assists in eventually punishing Count Wolfenstein, and the two lovers are brought back together. And, of course, Herzog, naturally, is sent to the devil. As one critic wrote in 1874, quote, The wicked old black crook is toasted like a muffin on Zamiel's trident, and the virtuous Rudolph has a good time of it with Stalacta and the rest of the girls. So believe it or not, Wheatley couldn't get that to work on the stage. So he thought, why not combine the Parisian ballet troupe, mix that in with the play? And then, because, you know, that might seem a little cumbersome, why not stitch the whole thing together with some random songs? 
It's like that scene from a Reese's peanut butter cup commercial, mixing a little ballet peanut butter in with your overly wrought melodramatic chocolate. For weeks that summer, the producers forced these disparate parts together. The supernatural material demanding special effects be also woven into the mix. We refer to The Black Crook as America's first musical today. There's some debate about that, which I'll get to later. But in many ways, it's more akin to a Hollywood blockbuster film. One can even imagine Johnny Depp in the role of Count Wolfenstein. The production was loaded with razzle-dazzle and sex appeal, with little interest in improving the comically ridiculous plot. Still, its playwright, Charles Barris, was less than thrilled to see his precious work stretched thin over a bloated, near-erotic spectacle. The producers paid him off handsomely. As William Wheatley's business manager would later write, quote, Elegant writing, with its daintily picked words and smooth-flowing sentences, is all well enough in its place. But that place is not in the drama of this prosy, money-grabbing age. The playgoer doesn't relish it. What he wants is something to please the eye and tickle the ear, something to strangle his cares and cut the throat of his troubles, something to make him laugh and forget he has a note to pay tomorrow. One critical key to distract from the ridiculous story of the Black Crook was the use of nudity, or rather, dancers in nude-colored costumes. Numbers from the French ballet were distributed wholesale into the new production, or as one source describes, quote, Specifically, ballet dances for flowers, for sea creatures set in an underwater grotto, for masked dangers in a fairy tale ballroom, and for various supernatural beings who alternatively threaten and rescue the central romantic couple. The entire massive production chugged along in rehearsals during the summer of 1866, while a post-Civil War New York, riddled with corrupt politics and still painfully divided by national tragedies, sweltered in a dismal heat. What New Yorkers needed was an epic to take their minds off the world. The Black Crook opened on the evening of September 12, 1866, to a sold-out audience of 3,200 people, featuring such extraordinary set pieces as the Ballet de Fleur, the Incantation Scene, the Crystal Cascade, the Amazonian Dance and March, the Grotto of Stalacta, the Demon Dance, the Dance of Mermaids, and on and on and on. If the stage is already no place for restraint, then with the Black Crook, it was thoroughly banished from existence. Stalacta's rocky grotto, with a great degree of mechanical swivel, transformed before the audience's very eyes into the Fairy Queen's throne room domain. This was, in essence, two shows, stitched awkwardly together with random songs, and thus nobody seemed to be bothered that it was the length of two entire shows. The first night of The Black Crook lasted anywhere between five and a half and six hours. The numbed and shaken audience, having seen a stage miracle in front of their eyes, stumbling out into the gaslit streets for their carriages. A line from the New York Times review that you heard earlier addresses the fact that the reviewer didn't even have time to see the whole show. 
The late hour, not far from morning, at which the Black Crook closed, prevents a further notice of its merits. These thousands of theatergoers, many arriving home just as the sun was coming up, must have felt like they had lived through a little bit of fairy-dusted hallucination themselves. The Black Crook became the hottest ticket in town, perhaps the most buzzed-about show on the New York stage since George Aiken's production of Uncle Tom's Cabin in the 1850s. To be clear, nobody was fooled into thinking the Black Crook was some amazing work of art. Reviews of the day tended to sound like this one from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. To spend thousands of dollars in magnificent and gorgeous scenery in order to adorn a drama so utterly worthless as the Black Crook is as sensible and proper as bedecking a pauper idiot in fine clothes and jewelry. Word soon spread throughout the country of this strange, extravagant show. Brick Pomeroy, an anti-Lincoln copperhead from Wisconsin, wrote for his constituents... Everybody goes to see the Black Crook because not to have seen it is to be prudish, old fogeyish, behind the times. Its chief and only features are a lavish display of leg timber and costly stage effects. The Black Crook ran for 475 performances, an unheard of duration for this kind of show back in the day. They did eventually trim it a bit. In fact, quite unlike a modern Broadway musical and more like a variety show, songs came and went, as did dance numbers, depending on which dancers were in town. Along the way, several of the performers in The Black Crook became overnight stars, perhaps none more than Marie Bonfanti, the troupe's prima ballerina assoluta. Then there was Millie Cavendish, who is perhaps the show's most famous performer. She didn't have a leading role, and in fact, she died less than five months later of an illness that many back in the day believed was brought on by the production's vigorous performing schedule and the superstitious belief that rehearsing on Sunday was bad luck. Cavendish is known for performing the show's best-known song, a little ditty that seems to chastise the very audience itself. I will never more deceive you or of happiness bereave you, but I'll die and made you grieve you. Oh, you naughty, naughty men. You may talk of love and sighing, say for us you're nearly dying. All the while you know you're trying to deceive you naughty men. You may talk of love and sighing, say for us you're nearly dying. All the while you know you're trying to deceive you naughty, naughty men. The Black Crook could not be this successful on its own. A good show has to drum up its share of controversy, and the legions of near-nude women prompted moralists to attack the show for its lack of decency, which, naturally, only made it more popular. One Dr. Charles Smith, from a lectern at Cooper Union, issued a stark warning, quote, let husbands and parents and guardians who value the morals of their wives, their daughters, and their wards bear a watchful eye and keep them out of the walls of Niblo's during the reign of the Black Crook. The Black Crook was such a success that some reports claim it made more money at the box office than every other show playing in New York at the time combined. Versions of the Black Crook played in theaters across the country, primarily enriching the playwright Charles Barris, his bruised pride having healed quite nicely. There are many aspects to the Black Crook that seem revolutionary today. 
Nudity on stage, or near nudity, as was most likely the case with the Black Crook dancers, this was not actually that rare back then. Many variety stages back then featured artists model tableau, nude modeling, as a form of entertainment. But the Black Crook helped make female sexuality a critical component of stage extravaganzas, inspiring shows as far-flung as Floridora, the Ziegfeld Follies, and even the Radio City Rockettes. But is the Black Crook the first musical? Well, unlike other revolutionary inventions featured on this particular show in the past, inventions like the remote control or the electric chair, where the absolute first version of that thing can be strictly identified, the first musical is really uncertain and and is actually up for debate. People have traditionally settled upon the Black Crook for a few reasons. For instance, for its day at least, it was a relatively sophisticated combination of a play with music, dancing, and stagecraft. The songs were even on occasion performed by actors within the show themselves, as opposed to having singers just come in and out with no involvement in the play itself. The Black Crook is considered the first because of a metric that many use to gauge the quality of a Broadway musical. It was a smash hit, a show which ran longer than almost any other, touring the country and inspiring others to emulate its success. Artistically, many historians look back to a show five years earlier called The Seven Sisters, produced by pioneering theater star Laura Keene, as a show with similar characteristics as The Black Crook. Keene, incidentally, was performing in another show called Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater on the night that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in 1865. What the Black Crook created was a new type of buzzed-about, delirious American stage spectacular. So next time you see a show with sets that look like a theme park ride, a cast with seemingly as many people in it as the number of people in the audience, and a set of songs that perhaps seems plucked from a Katy Perry album, you're witnessing the legacy of Herzog and Count Wolfenstein, and of course, that Broadway diva herself, Stalacta, Queen of the Golden Realm. This show was inspired by a series of posts by Doug Reside, curator at the Billy Rose Theater Division of the New York Public Library of the Performing Arts. He also provides a host of public domain materials relating to the original production of The Black Crook. The music you heard was performed by Adam Roberts, an Austin music director and arts critic, and the vocalist on You Naughty Naughty Men, magnificently echoing the talents of Millie Cavendish with singer Libby Dees. I'd also like to give a little nod to a revival of The Black Crook, a much scaled-back version, of course, which performed in New York in the Lower East Side last year on the 150th anniversary of its original opening, which means anything is possible and you might see a version of The Black Crook in your hometown soon. But if I'm doing a show on the birth of Broadway, well, I must bring in a theater star, of course, to help me out. My guest voice today was Ben Rimmelauer, a performer, director, and writer based in New York City. Now, some of you may know Ben from a couple highly acclaimed shows, Bad With Money and Patty Issues. Now, I saw Patty Issues a couple months ago. It's an incredibly 
funny show about an unconventional family situation and, of course, being a mega fan of Patti Lapone. It was hilarious. I hope you check it out. Ben will actually be performing later this summer in Provincetown, and you can find other information on future performances at his website, benrimmelauer.com. This show is also dedicated to Andrew, who's heading out this summer to music direct shows all up and down the eastern seaboard. All of them will probably be better than The Black Crook. If you have any feedback, please email me at the address for my other podcast. That's greg at boweryboyspodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. Until the next, this has been The First. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.